harp, she flutter with stuttering sounds. Gutter music for silver lining clouds tumbling down. Town, we breathe in memory. Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. My name is Julian Guerrero. I'll be one of your hosts tonight. And I'm Mel Gonzalez. I'll be your other host. Tonight's episode is called Reclaiming Stolen Land in New York. We'll be discussing issues related to land sovereignty and speaking with those fighting for it. We're really excited for our guests tonight. Khadija will be speaking with members from the Shinnecock Nation, as well as with members of the Red Nation. We'll be taking calls later on in the show, so stick around. We want to hear what questions or comments you have to say about these issues. But first, we'll go over the latest headlines. The Trump administration is poised to approve a number of pipelines in its final weeks in office. In Minnesota, the Army Corps of Engineers approved a permit for the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline, which would carry tar sands oil from Canada to Wisconsin, cutting through indigenous territory in Minnesota and running under more than 200 water streams. Protesters have mobilized encampments to prevent pipeline construction. Local police appear to be directly collaborating with the pipeline company. The indigenous women, Two-Spirit-led Genu Collective, posted pictures of the Hubbard County Sheriff receiving bolt cutters and other tools to tear down protest camps directly from Enbridge. Meanwhile, Truthout's Liana First Awry reports that smaller pipelines in the southeast are also nearing final approval, such as the Biahalia connection that would run through Tennessee and Mississippi, and the Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline in Virginia. After our headlines, Mel and I will actually discuss the fight against a proposed pipeline running through Bushwick, Brooklyn. In COVID news, there is hope that a vaccine could become available across the country within weeks, and if approved by the Food and Drug Administration. But there are major questions about who will get them first. The vaccine is set to be distributed among states based on their population size. In New York, Governor Cuomo said this Wednesday that the state could receive 170,000 doses by December 15th. According to his plan, frontline healthcare workers will be first to receive the vaccine, followed by nursing home patients, senior citizens, and frontline service workers. While the Trump administration has given state governors little guidance on vaccine allocation, Trump's vaccine plan includes a request that all governors provide state ID numbers for all COVID-19 patients after the vaccine is available. Cuomo accused the federal government of potentially excluding and targeting undocumented immigrants who seek vaccines. And he has said he won't comply with any order to request or share personal information that could be used by federal agencies to deport people. But there are still concerns among pediatricians and public health officials who have seen a decline in the number of immigrant families seeking medical care for their children due to Trump's public charge policies that prohibited immigrants from obtaining legal status if they requested public assistance. Healthcare officials now worry that immigrant families will be discouraged from seeking vaccines even though they are not part of the public charge policy. The federal prison system will be among the first government agencies to receive the coronavirus vaccine. However, it will be prison staff who are given the vaccine first, even though three times as many incarcerated people have tested positive than staff. In the last month, there have been significant outbreaks of COVID-19 cases throughout federal prisons. A report from Washington's Coyote Ridge Prison, where an outbreak led to over 300 cases among incarcerated people, details the failure of correctional staff to contain the outbreak by not providing medical care or quarantining those affected fast enough and not enforcing social distancing 
and protective personnel equipment among correctional staff. Correctional facility officials also report that incarcerated folks are hesitant to report their symptoms to avoid harsh solitary confinement, which is being used as a quarantine effort. Cases are also dramatically rising inside of ICE detention centers, where there is less oversight than there are for prisons. Over 20% of the ICE detained population is testing positive due to unsanitary and overcrowded conditions. Yet ICE is dramatically under-reporting COVID-19 cases and failing to release vulnerable detainees. Rather than release detainees to stop the virus spread in detention centers, ICE has contributed to the spread of COVID-19 in Latin America and the Caribbean by sending over 450 deporting uh, people on deporting flights, many of which included people sick with COVID. The American Medical Association has called for stronger disease mitigation measures at the nation's correctional and immigrant detention facilities, and has called for correctional workers, incarcerated people, and detained immigrants to be included in the initial phases of coronavirus vaccine distribution. Health experts and advocates have universally agreed that social distancing is impossible to enforce in prisons, that solitary confinement does not adequately replace quarantine and continue to call instead for the release of incarcerated people under medical parole. Over the coming weeks, we'll continue to report on the question of who is and who isn't being prioritized for vaccines and treatment. And that's it for headlines. Shout out to Lupita and Danny for helping putting them together. We're going to be taking a short musical break, but when we come back, we're going to be discussing the local fight right here in Brooklyn to stop a natural gas pipeline from being built. Stay tuned. El Derecho de Vivir en Paz, The Right to Live in Peace, a song originally by Chilean folk singer Victor Jara. This one was sung by various Latin American artists. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. So as we said before, we're going to be talking about this pipeline going through Brooklyn. And for New Yorkers, your gas bill might be increasing soon to help pay for the construction of this natural gas pipeline. The multinational company building the pipeline, National Grid, doesn't even have the permits nor the funding to finish the pipeline and is asking New Yorkers to pay that difference. 
A coalition of New Yorkers and organizations have launched the No North Brooklyn Pipeline campaign to stop this pipeline construction. Here's a clip from one of their rallies. I've been thinking about lately is that National Grid and other corporate utilities, they put this pipeline through areas that they thought would be too sick and too poor and too exhausted and too tired to fight back against it. But here we are resisting actively the 12 people who got arrested, resisting actively showing that that's not true and that just because we are marginalized does not mean that we will lay down and take oppressive forces. We will fight back against them and we have been fighting back Woo! against them. issues going on in the world. Why do you care about a pipeline? It's underground, it's out of sight, it might seem a little bit removed from our day-to-day -day struggles, but what I always say is that this pipeline is the intersection of environmental justice, racial justice, and economic justice. So I'm going to break that down real quick. In terms of the economy, this is a justice issue because we, the people of New York City, are being made to pay more in our monthly gas bills for this pipeline at a time when we can afford it the least, right? And when you think about how COVID-19 intersects with this issue, it's a health issue, right? In Brownsville, we have the highest asthma rate in all of New York City, right? So if you think about what it means to bring a toxic fracked gas pipeline into a neighborhood which already has the highest asthma rate in New York City, does that make sense to y'all? No, it's wrong, it's wrong. Brownsville has the lowest life expectancy of all of New York City. And that's where the issue of environmental racism comes in, right? And that's because neighborhoods such as Brownsville and other low and middle income neighborhoods of color have been systemically disinvested from, right? It's not a coincidence that we have more sickness, more COVID-19 cases than other neighborhoods, right? But when you think about environmental justice as well, methane is the primary component of fracked gas, right? That's what's going to be flowing underneath our neighborhoods if we don't resist this. And methane is 86 times more toxic than carbon dioxide in terms of climate change. So it's affecting our health on hyper-local levels affecting the people who live over top of the pipeline, the community gardens, affecting people's respiratory systems, but it also affects us on a global level, right? So when we talk about what we want, our demands as activists against this pipeline, the first thing we want is the pipeline to be stopped, right? No North Brooklyn pipeline, y'all. Let's say it together. No North Brooklyn pipeline. And just a few days after that rally, this Thursday, Mayor de Blasio finally came out against the pipeline, echoing what you heard here, what activists in Brooklyn have been saying all along, drawing the connections between the pipeline, climate change, environmental racism, and corporate greed. So now the spotlight turns on Governor Cuomo and the Public Service Commission he appointed, which has to further approve the completion of the pipeline. So activists are calling on them to reject National Gas's proposals and to instead make firm commitments to meeting its 2050 goals of net zero emissions by 2050. And I think New, York, New Yorkers should remember that Brooklyn is home to one of the largest oil spills on record in the United States, which is something that you know I really had no idea about. Um, and it's, it was really in the same area that National Gas seeks to expand operations in right now. There was an average of 630 pipeline incidents per year uh, resulting in 15 fatalities 
Um, so this is an issue that is not just theoretical, the kinds of fears that people have in these communities. It's something that's happening right here in the neighborhoods we live in. Definitely. And people aren't really talking enough about this, even though there's been a big fight here for several years um, against fracking altogether. Um, I remember in 2014, there was big debates about stopping fracking altogether and Cuomo sort of tiptoed around this issue. Now, in June of 20th, last year, 2019, he Governor Cuomo did sign the most ambitious like climate legislation in the country. It's called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. But in this fight with National Grid, he's still not evoked um, the sort of the sentiments and the 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 thrust of that uh, that that act here in New York State or in New York City. So it's interesting to see this back and forth. And hopefully, you know, Governor Cuomo comes to a decision here that really puts um, priority over people's safety and security. And as well, I think should consider actually, you know, how do we make this shift? How do we implement the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act um, without sort of being contradictory around it and and still allowing other quote-unquote green energy uh, infrastructure such as natural gas, which is largely discredited among uh, discussions around what what is actually needed to address the the climate crisis that we're going to be seeing here in New York City. Yeah, I think a lot of companies still still try to promote natural gas as something that, you know, is natural, is something that um, is at least somewhat like the kinds of like green, sustainable um, energy resources that we were trying to get towards. But but in reality, it's not. And and the other thing is that I feel like if we're the ones footing the bill, I think that that's something that I was that I've been really surprised by is the fact that. You know, infrastructure, you usually think that infrastructure is something that um, these companies pay for. Um, and it, it's it's an investment that they have to put in in order to be able to sell us their products. But in reality, you know, they're they're lobbying. They're trying to get approval for for fair increases, which is something that all of us are going to have to pay pay for. Um, and so when we see these pipelines being built, you know, right underneath us, we're the ones that are ultimately going to have to pay um, and being asked to pay for for these so-called improvements, uh, especially in a time when I think a lot of these companies are at first they were arguing that we really have there's there's demand for for more natural gas, and then that was kind of largely discredited, um, and now they're arguing that these are things that they need for sustainability, sustainability, um, which again is something that that's that's not the priority that we should be having um, these days. Right. Some of the points that the campaign, the No North Brooklyn Pipeline campaign has sort of put together is that they say that this is actually this whole plan is not about modernizing the system for heating and cooking. This is really just about expansion to the charge rate payers, um, an increase and really just grow profits for for national grid shareholders. And it's not even a pipeline that's going to service the affected community. It's actually going to go just right through. It's totally a transmission pipeline altogether. So I think it does say a lot about, you know, how much control we have uh, as New Yorkers over the land that we live on and the projects that are created upon them, um, oftentimes without our consent. Yeah, and I think, you know, one one of the things about this movement against the pipeline um, is that it, it's really being led by indigenous peoples and communities of color here in New York City. Um, and so, you know, we, had, we actually want to turn now to another clip 
from from the rally that we played a clip from before. That was just days before the mayor's announcement um, coming out against the the pipeline. Um, and it's in a land acknowledgement read by Pati Ankali that you know I think reminds us of exactly what we were talking about, Julian, this long legacy of, of extraction and dispossession that's happening um, right here in our in our neighborhoods. As many of you are aware, this month we honor Native American Heritage Month, which should serve to acknowledge indigenous sovereignty and stewardship of the land we stand on. I myself am Runa Kichwa for human of Andina indigenous descent, and my ancestors were able to walk freely to meet with their brethren up and down the Americas before colonizers took over and drew their imaginary borders. This week in particular serves as a reminder that the traditional story of Thanksgiving, and by extension the pilgrims, is a settler colonial myth immortalized to serve the interest behind the creation of the U.S. colonial project without actually having to confront the extreme brutality, sexual violence, and slave labor committed against native people of this land that is the foundation of this nation's formation. I want to recognize and acknowledge that those residing in the Americas, like myself, and many of you listening now, are on unceded and unsurrendered territory. And here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, we are standing on Lenape Hoking, Canarsie territory, which is ancestral homeland of the Lenape tribes. This means that we are on land that does not belong to us and was stolen through acts of war, enslavement, and bioterrorism. And as a side note, as a side note, we also accept that Western maps of indigenous nations are very often inherently colonial and do not delegate power according to the imposed borders that don't exist in many nations throughout history. With that said, we nevertheless concede that this land belongs to indigenous peoples whose roots were planted for millennia and a reminder that land back and reparations essential to indigenous and black liberation. Through that end, as we discuss the development of this racist, toxic pipeline being built on stolen land, please respect, pay respects to the indigenous ancestors who were erased from the narrative of the European colonial project of the United States, along with the African peoples, and take a moment to understand the many legacies of violence, displacement, and white settlement that brings us here today. Thank you. We'll be taking another music break, but when we come back, Khadija will be talking with our guests from the Shinnecock Nation, as well as members of the revolutionary indigenous organization, the Red Nation. We'll be taking callers near the end, so make sure to give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, give us a call at 212-209-2877. So stick around, y'all. Check it, uh, yo. My colonial colonized name is Russell Mays. I want to talk a little bit about radicalism and being called radical. You know, maybe it is true I am a radical. 
Because all I've ever asked, all I've ever demanded, all I've ever fought for, all I've ever been shot for, all I've ever been stabbed and beaten for, or thrown in jail or prison for, is to ask and demand any way, shape, or form that the United States of America live up to its own laws. Identity, searching in bottles of whiskey, I've seen my elders pass. That was The Radical by Natani Means, who sampled his father's voice, the late Russell Means of the American Indian Movement, in his song. You'll be listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I wanted to start off by giving a warm Working Class Heroes welcome to our guest today. We're super excited to have you guys. We have Lou Cornum, the chairperson of the East Coast Freedom Council of the Red Nation, a revolutionary indigenous organization, Savannah, also a member of the Red Nation, as well as Tila Trog, a member of the Shinnecock Nation. Thank you all so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for ha- having us. We're super excited to be here. Awesome. Um, to start off with, um, I wanted to ask you, Lou and Savannah, and Lou, if you want to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, if you did want to identify your nation and also talk about um, the Red Nation, the organization, um, its formation and, and their work. Sure. Um, so yeah, my name's Lou. Um, I was born a member of the Navajo Nation. Uh, I grew up mostly in, in Arizona and then moved out here to the East Coast. I live in Lenape Hoking now and uh, been here for a bit over 10 years. Um, so I actually first learned about the Red Nation from afar. Um, the Red Nation formed in 2014 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, where I do have, I have a lot of family in New Mexico. Um, and I actually used to tell people I was from New Mexico instead of Arizona, because it like sounds way better um, than being from Arizona. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the Red Nation formed in Albuquerque, which for those who aren't super familiar with um the Southwest and that geography and specifically like the, the settler geography, right. Um, there is a lot of violence in the, what we call border towns, right. And these aren't towns that abut the colonial U S Mexico border, but these internal colonial borders of, uh, settler towns and Indian reservations. Um, so the red nation really formed in response to the border town violence that's present in places, um, throughout, uh, Albuquerque or throughout, sorry, Arizona, New Mexico, Throughout Indian country, right, which is all of Turtle Island. Um, so the group first formed, um, yeah, in a pretty kind of abolitionist origin, I would say, um, coming out against um, settler police departments, but also just the overall, the sort of the total environment of violence uh, against Native people that occurs on these still very like frontier defined places. Um, and from there, the Red Nation has. Um, developed into, again, kind of like addressing that total atmosphere of violence. What creates that, right? What are the conditions um, that have made that violence possible? Um, And seeing how it really connects to the environmental degradation of Native lands um, and um, thinking, how do we address this like on a a much larger scale, right? Um, So then and people like myself, you know, were learning about the Red Nation and seeing the the work they were doing and being super interested in it. And I was almost like, I'm going to move to Albuquerque. Like, I need to, like, <laughs> you know, link up with these people. And I had gone to a Native Liberation Conference in Gallup where um, 
I met a lot of uh, a lot of people who are now comrades. Um, but instead of me moving to Albuquerque, we decided to uh, you know organize where I'm at, and um, then started the seeds of the East Coast Freedom Council. Um, and yeah, I can let Savannah maybe if you want to talk about your interest in um, being you know the East Coast is still a pretty recent formation. Um, so we're all sort of uh, emerging into this Freedom Council right now. Yeah. Um, hi, yeah, my name's Savannah. I'm a member of the Eastern Shoshone Nation um, from the Wind River Reservation. Um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Seattle. And I um, have been living in here in Lenape Hoking for um, just over two years. And... Um, <laughs> I um, got involved with the Red Nation, I think, um, one, just from a desire to um, organize in community. It was actually really happenstance. I met um, a, a person who is um, a member of the Red Nation uh, randomly at a conference, and um, he ended up inviting me. And it was inviting me to a recruitment weekend Um and uh, it was also um, at the very early ages of the ages, the very early months of the pandemic. It feels like we've been living in this um, for ages. But um, yeah, I was really at the very um, early, early months of the pandemic. And um, I think there was just a desire for me um, personally to um, be intentional about organizing um, against, um, capitalism and colonialism in a, um, in, in community with other, um, indigenous people, um, but also within a community of people that, um, operated on, um, the basis of revolutionary love for all oppressed people. Um, so the Red Nation, um, became a way for me to be able to do that. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Savannah. And speaking of, you know, um, when you give the point regarding revolutionary love, and that's what you center um, your work around, just, you know, with the Red Nation, um, that brings to mind a lot of um, just just looking at the Red Nation's website and um, just like founding documents and things like that. One one thing that always uh, catches my attention is the focus on international solidarity, um, internationalism, um, and just solidarity with oppressed peoples globally. Um, and yeah, I, I just wanted to ask a little bit about that, like what, what this means to you and um, how how you all show your sol- solidarity or what um, the Red Nation does um, with regard to that. Um, yeah, I'd totally um, love to speak on that because that's kind of actually um, the thing that, most like fired me up sort of about finding out about the Red Nation um, is finding other um, indigenous comrades who were really driven by um, these like principles of internationalism and thinking about indigeneity on a global scale. Um, and also I think um, for, for me, like I also came to internationalism through studying um, black freedom struggles. And so I think that in being internationalists, we're also thinking about like how to be in solidarity with different traditions of black nationalism, right? Uh, and I think that speaks to um, something somebody was saying, I think in that clip actually that you're playing about the No North Brooklyn pipeline, uh, about how land back, you know, also like applies um, to black liberation. 
Um, so that's how we, th- I, you know, I think about internationalism, like on Turtle Island, but also um, it's been just incredibly like enriching and nourishing and exciting to learn about Latin American socialism um, and like indigenous movements, indigenous led movements for socialism in Latin America. And um, we actually, um, you know, we had a delegation to, um, to Venezuela uh, before I joined and then this pandemic happens. I don't know when travel will happen, but that's definitely something we're interested in, right? Uh, it's just actually like literally going and meeting uh, comrades around the world. There was also a delegation to Palestine. Um, so I'm hoping that in the future we'll be able to continue, right? Just like that making making kinship, um, strengthening relationships uh, by actually going and, and being with people. Um but in the meantime, I think it's a lot about just like studying and sharing and trying to create like these alternative relationships that open up when you like stop focusing so much on the U.S. relationship, right? Uh, which obviously we have to contend with because it like defines so much of our reality, but not seeking like everything from um, the U.S., turning away from the U.S. as our like horizon of liberation or possibility and being like, what, what if we linked up <laughs> with uh with the other indigenous folks right and like what could really be pretty beautiful if we all got together on that level yeah that's amazing and just a beautiful way to put it um yeah and like as the red nation east coast chapter i I know um you're also involved with struggles all over um turtle island so i i wanted to make sure we bring up the other major topic of today and that's the struggle of the shinnecock nation and I wanted to invite our guest, Tila, of, Shin- of the Shinnecock Nation, to talk a little bit about yourself, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and uh, just your experience, um, you know, with a greater settler colonial society. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Tila Troge, and I'm a member of the Shinnecock Nation. I'm also an attorney um, and um I've been doing a lot of work recently as my nation's COVID-19 director. And um, so I actually live in a town that's um, it's called Riverhead. It's one town over from Southampton, which surrounds uh, my nation's territory. And so I come from a family of educators and activists. Um, my uncle was the first member of the Shinnecock Nation to go to college My mom studied American history at Dartmouth um, and, you know, education was really important to my family. And one of the reasons why um, I live in Riverhead is because New York State is really violent about taking children away from their families. And, um, you know, up until the 1950s, even the 1960s, New York was taking children. Basically, when they turned five, they would take them to these boarding schools. And my great grandfather was really insistent that his children not be taken to these schools. And so he moved over to the next town so that when the Indian agents came to the res, you know, they wouldn't be able to take his kids. And so um, I'm also from another tribe in Massachusetts. um, And so my grandfather is from that tribe, um, and he also was really aware of um, just this horrible history of the boarding schools, and he didn't want his family torn apart. And so I always, you know, my mom took a really, um, she would read all of my books in school, and she would call out racism where she saw it, and she would push my teachers to change their curriculum. And um, she would come in and educate all the other students about Native history. And, um, you know, it became so impactful that she was actually asked to speak 
at every single school on Long Island to really try to educate children about the true history because there's nothing in the New York State curriculum that even mentions the Shinnecock Nation. It's like we've just been erased from the history books. And so, um, you know, even people, your neighbors don't even know that there's a tribal nation living right next door. And so the area where um, next to my nation is like the playground of the rich and the famous. It's billionaires, it's millionaires. And um, my nation, you know, we live in poverty and we're struggling and we struggle just for the life's basic necessities. And so growing up that way, I mean, it really makes an impact. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of opportunities that a lot of other people in my nation don't necessarily have. You know, I went to college, I went to law school, I traveled the world, I've, you know, been all across the United States. I've learned from the best indigenous law scholars that there are, um, the top programs. I've, you know, um, sat and learned from the experts in indigenous law and policy. And um, with this COVID-19, my nation, it was really every day I would hear these heartbreaking stories of just um, bad housing conditions, um, lack of access to diapers and baby supplies and food and um, masks and Lysol and cleaning supplies. And at the same time, New York State is engaging my nation in litigation against our economic development project, which I worked on for a couple of years to show that my nation has um, land title to um, a parcel of highway that was illegally constructed through my nation's Aboriginal territory. And, um, but New York state has always done this since colonial times, just tried to like make it so that we could not engage in any type of economic development at all. And so we just clashed at this pandemic. Things were already really bad and they just got so much worse. And, um, so that, um, you know, really is where we are at today. We're just trying to figure out how we're going to make it through this winter and how we're going to survive. And, um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing Tila. Um, before we, uh, just, uh, move on. Um, I did want to just do the station ID. Um, you're listening to working class heroes radio on WBAI 99.5 FM also streaming on WBAI.org. Um, yeah, thank you so much. That, that was uh, incredibly heartbreaking, powerful. And just, you know, as a settler myself and growing up in settler schools, um, you know, everything that you said, yeah, like just the erasure of Indigenous peoples, like um, a lot of these things I know our listeners are learning about for the first time. Um, and yeah, and just the stark contrast of, like you mentioned, you're, you know, you're right by the Hamptons, which is some of the most wealthy and powerful people. And I think it's a reminder that, um, you know, colonialism is like, is ongoing and it's, it's a continued process. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to, um, move it forward a little bit, um, if you can tell the folks a little bit about this legal struggle that you're, you're in right now, um, with, with these governments, like, um, what is the context for this? And I know there's, uh, there was a warrior camp in response that, that sort of wrapped up a little bit. If you want to speak on that, Teela or anyone else. Sure, I could speak on that. Um, so yeah, so this litigation, um, it goes back really our story um, 
you know, obviously to 1640 when these colonizers first arrived and they started doing all these land grabs. Um, but the most significant land grabs occurred in 1703, 1859, and 1959. And so the most recent one in 1959 was New York State came through. It was right after the World War and they were really increasing infrastructure all over the country and building highways. And so they did this to, in New York State anyway, um, to Shinnecock and the Seneca Nation around the same time. Both of us are now engaged in litigation with the state over these easements. Um, and so what we did was we kind of just took advantage of a bad situation, right? And we constructed a monument sign on this parcel of highway um, that New York State illegally built through our land. And as soon as we got the sign constructed, literally the next day, New York State um, had us in court and they were able to just by lying to the judge flat out, um, get what's called a temporary restraining order. And so this temporary restraining order, which is supposed to be exactly that, right, temporary, lasted an entire year. And so finally, one year later to the day, a New York State judge took a look at this. And again, like I had done years of legal research to prove that this was Shinnecock land before we built this monument. And so we got a chance to submit um, just a huge stack of documentation proving the land title. And so the judge looked at all of that and he's told the state flat out, there's no way that you can come in and show any evidence that would prove that you own this land. It's clearly the land of the Shinnecock Nation. And they have the absolute right as a sovereign nation to conduct economic development on the land in order to meet the basic survival needs of their people. He explained to the state that the scales of justice tip clearly in the favor of the Shinnecock Nation, and yet New York still wages just this complete economic warfare against us. And so the point of our encampment was really to raise awareness on this ongoing human rights violation and the litigation that New York was using to strangle us, um, you know, at the lowest point of our economic timeline here. We're literally struggling to survive. We have no idea how we're going to make it through this winter. Literally, literally, we have homeless people. We have elders living in inadequate housing. Um, and we have widespread food insecurity, not just on Shinnecock, but in our entire area. Um, if you're not a billionaire or a millionaire, you're facing food insecurity in the Hamptons, um, as well as homelessness. And so it's bad for everyone here. And um, yeah, so our sovereignty camp is really just to um, call awareness. Um, we called out to anyone who could help us, please help us. And so um, one of the ways that you can help if you're listening is you can follow us on Instagram. Our handle is Warriors of the Sunrise, and we have a link tree in our bio, and it links to a toolkit that you can use to call Governor Cuomo, call Attorney General Letitia James, call the Department of Transportation Commissioner um, and do all kinds of things that we have scripts that you could read from um, and just tell them to drop the lawsuit against the Shinnecock Nation. And um, so even just yesterday, New York State went forward with filing all their paperwork um, for an appeal of the judge's decision that it was Shinnecock land and that we have the right to conduct economic development on it um, to feed our people. That's literally the decision that New York State appealed just yesterday, they filed all that paperwork in court. And so um, they're not hearing us, unfortunately. While we did get a response from our action, um, the response was not to drop the lawsuit. And so we're not really sure at this point why New York State is doing this. Um, but we do really 
ask that you make those calls and tell them to stop wasting taxpayer money on this. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, we have just a couple more minutes or uh, just a minute before we open up to the callers, but um, I did want to give Lou and Savannah a chance to uh, step in at all if you wanted to um, add to anything Tila said. And also, if you wanted to, um, we do stream on major um, uh, uh, podcast platforms. Um, so we have listeners from all over. So I, I did want to give you give you all the opportunity to let our listeners know if there's anything they can do to stand in solidarity with Indigenous struggles um, closer to, to where they might be. I can go ahead and offer something if uh, others want to chime in after me um, at all. I mean, obviously, right, as he was talking about, like, um, check out the struggle that the Shinnecock are, are involved in if you're here or anywhere near Long Island. But even if you're not, right, you can make those phone calls to the governor and the attorney general and just spread the word um, about the situation there. Um, but generally, I think that's that's sort of uh, the practice, right, is organize with those who are already organizing. Like, there are uh, indigenous people who are engaged in land struggle all over Turtle Island, right? Um, and oftentimes it's also just about having basic material needs met so that people can continue um, to struggle just for, you know, that which is beyond your basic needs. Um, so yeah, I'd say, you know, find those who are already organizing around you. They're surely, they're out there. Um, I don't know if others have other... Yeah, just really quickly to add to that, I think... Um, there's a multitude of ways that folks can offer what they have um, to different indigenous land struggles, um, whether that is your time, um, your financial resources, other non-financial resources, your body, right, um, your voice, your platform, whatever it is. Um, you know, in the beginning of this segment, there was updates on line three and the action that's happening there in Minnesota. Um, and as Lou said, that there's indigenous resistance happening all over Turtle Island. Um, as we speak right now, there are other encampments that are happening. There's other um, folks and communities who are um, standing in direct um, resistance to con like settler colonialism. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you can give in, in other ways. Um, whatever whatever kind of resources are available to you. Awesome, thank you. Um, so we're going to take a quick musical break and then we'll be answering the phones. So do give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. <laughs>
are back with Working Class Heroes, guys. And you guys ready to take some phone calls? We actually have one caller on the line waiting. Awesome, Giovanni. I just want to let our listeners know that that was Land Back by A Tribe Called Red featuring Boogie the Beat and Northern Voice. Um, Yeah, let's hear that caller. Okay, caller, you are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Hi, my name is Gordon, and I'm calling from out in Montauk Point, Long Island. And I really appreciate this effort. I believe I might have met uh, the guest from the Shinnecock Nation, an attorney, maybe over at one of the showings of a, a great television show, uh, Conscious a movie, PBS special, Conscious Point. If you could elaborate that again and identify yourself and tell people who you are. And this also reflects that uh, our whole government was based on our American, the Iroquois, Algonquin nations of how people would talk for three days and discuss And what did they all do? They all deferred to the women. And more power to all of us. This is our government. It's we the people. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, Didi, you can go ahead and respond to that. Thank you so much for bringing up Conscious Point because, um, you know, grace protection is a really important element of this and um, a huge part of what we're fighting for. So I was talking about that 1703 deal a little bit earlier, but what happened there was New York State stole our most sacred area of land called Shinnecock Hills, and they're completely desecrating it. Um, our grave sites, like it's a horrible thing to have to watch your ancestors be dug out of the grave so that a mansion could be placed there. Um, and um, the Shinnecock Hills Golf Course, um, that's well documented to have a number of Shinnecock human remains. And those remains are still actually in institutions right now. So since Shinnecock didn't receive federal recognition until 2010, um, NAGPRA didn't apply to us. And NAGPRA still doesn't apply to a lot of this stolen land in Shinnecock Hills. And so Conscious Point is a really great resource for people to um, learn about our struggle with the Shinnecock Hills. Um, And please, again, reach out to us on Instagram if you watch the film and have any questions about that. Thank you. Um, Giovanni, did we have any other callers? We actually do have another caller. All right. Caller, you are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Joel Kupferman calling from New York City, and I am the co-chair of the Environmental Committee of the National Lawyers Guild and a member of the Indigenous People's Rights Committee, um, which provides legal support for many of those actions that you're talking about um, now on on your show right now. And I originally come from uh, Huntington, Long Island. Yes. And um, it's, it's also really interesting because a lot of our actions, environmental actions, are against um, New York State. Um, and we've had problems that DEC has said many times when there's destruction of lands and the like, um, that there's been no impact. So the times where we don't want them to act, <laughs> that's when they're, they, they've moved their magic wand. But we totally support with your... Uh, your work and offer some legal support. 
Um, I do want to point out that um, there's an online film festival called the Human Rights Film Festival, and they're going to be showing Conscious Point. And if you go to our Instagram, again, the handle is Warriors of the Sunrise. In our link tree, we have um, a link to that film. And so you could register now and then watch it on your own time, um, I believe, on December 9th. I've actually been trying to figure out how to access it <laughs> up to this point. So I, I really appreciate it. I'll definitely check that out. And I hope our listeners do as well. Um, I might be mistaken, but Giovanni, did you say we had another caller? Yeah, we do actually have a, another caller right now. Ready to take it? Yeah. All right. Caller, you are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Hi, my name is Grace and I'm calling from Brooklyn. And um, I was actually at the camp. And it was awesome. And it was so, such a safe space for me. And, you know, growing up on Long Island, I never really felt like a space like that was available to me. So um, in regards to getting the word out to, you know, people about what you're doing, um, like maybe other POC or white people that haven't come to terms with their whiteness, how can with them on on a level that they can understand without being offended um, about what's going on out there. Grace, it's so good to hear from you. (laughs) (laughs) All like lit up when we heard, we was like, Grace, is it Grace? It's Grace, (laughs) it's that Grace. Um, So yeah, good to hear from you. Um, I was actually so excited. Um, I wasn't like taking in the question fully, I have to admit, but I think you were asking um, about like how to approach people who might be kind of like antagonistic to the cause, like on a, like a knee jerk level. Um, Is that what you're you're kind of getting at? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think about this all the time in different communities, right. Um, And kind of like also like choosing your battles and knowing who, like who is like earnestly open to learning about uh, like the shared basis of your like liberation and who's just like always going to be standing in the way because people are just going to always be standing in your way. It's like, you just got to like go around them. Like you just can't spend your time getting distracted and exhausted with that. You know what I mean? It's like totally meant to like deplete you. Um, so you just like find the people who you like know um, are like actually open to it and then spend time. I mean, it does, it doesn't require time, right? Like, a lot of times to like change somebody's mind, you can't just like come at them. You actually have to like start a relationship with them, get to like know why they have that point of view and then like figure out, you know, like what's actually the root of it so you can change it. So it does take like effort, but like only some people are worth that effort in my opinion, you know? Sure. Awesome. Um, yeah, Giovanni, any, any other callers? No, we don't have any more at the moment. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you all want to talk a, a little bit more um, on, you know, what, you know, if you want to talk more about the Red Nation and your work or what our listeners can do um, in support um, of this particular struggle or anything else. Yeah, um, I do want to say that we're having an action tomorrow um, at the Shinnecock Canal. And so 
Um, we have really broad concerns about the environment and climate change. And so we really encourage you, if you can, um, to come out. And of course, all COVID-19 um, safety rules apply with social distancing and everything. Um, but that's really a really great way to come out and talk to us and meet us and learn about these issues. Um, because we are really on the um, you know, initial line of facing these climate crises and environmental damage to our homelands. Um, we see that firsthand. And so we're on the front lines fighting out here and please join us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and in fact, I, I know um, one thing we didn't get to cover yet is the topic of decolonization. That might be a new term for some of our listeners, but I just wanted to invite you all to talk a little bit about what that means to you um, as Indigenous folks, particularly, um, you know, in, in struggles for uh, decolonization. Yeah, um, decolonization and the term is um, so loaded these days. I think that it is a term that has been watered down and um, co-opted in a sense that um, I think it's oftentimes um, used as synonymous to indigenize, um, which makes it a passive term. Um, and I think when we talk about decolonization, um, we use it as a term to describe it's an action it's actionized right um and it's centered on um it's centered in land and rematriating the land um to about, about to indigenous black and indigenous people um and so i think um it's really become this this um this like popular term um and and it's not you know decolonization is not a metaphor um it's actually a really great piece that i recommend um reading um because it, it just talks about how um yeah decol decolonization is um is actually uh the act of rematriating the land um and um and sometimes by any means necessary, right? Um, and so I think, uh, I don't know if Lou, you wanna add anything um, to that, to this, this conversation, but um, I think that um, we have to think more critically about um, what it really means to return the land to, um, and under the stewardship of indigenous people, black and indigenous people. And um, yeah, <laughs> Lou, do you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I feel like you got it, right? That's like really what it's about is that we need to return land and life like back to the people who have been caring for the land, who have been making life possible. Um, and that um, I think as you're naming, right, the Black, the Indigenous, the colonized, the working class people. Um, and yeah, you recommended um, decolonization is not a metaphor. And when you were speaking, you said by any means necessary, or you, I feel like you're on that Fanon tip as well. Um, we watched uh, the, the documentary based on Fanon's book, Wretched of the Earth, while we were at Sovereignty Camp, actually. So definitely recommend Wretched of the Earth, but also the documentary based on it concerning violence. Um, yeah, that was a sweet memory from, from Sovereignty Camp as well. 
Thank you so much for all the resources, guys. Thank you for being here. Um, we are out of time today. Thank you to all our listeners and have a good evening. Thanks for having us. Get on for directions, meditate with cactus, go to resurrection, acceptance of life, self-love and meditation, ascension of matter, wings of the Saturn, burn the sweet grass and the ancestors gather, some respect, who knew the hoodoo, the ocean, the Zulu, the ayahuasca, Amazon, the witch doctor, red earth is burnt white clay and eating dirt, problem solving, greens have the carbon, pyramid building, black men evolving, microcosm, 30 day fast like burnt like a shaman, out of body, Machu Picchu, God is on the side of me, I'm in the galaxy, uh, I keep it lit like sage, the Palo Santo lights up place.